On this episode of DLN Extend, we discuss some open source projects to which we have personally contributed. This episode of DLN Extend is brought to you by DigitalOcean and Bitwarden. Welcome to episode 94 of DLN Extend. DLN Extend is a community-powered podcast. We take conversations from the DLN community from places like the DLN Discourse Forum, Telegram Group, Discord Server, and more. We also take topics from other shows around the network and give our takes. With me today is Wendy, the photographer, kickboxing champion of the Destination Linux Network, and Matt, who will mollywop you with one game recommendation after another. How are you two? Where's Nate and what have you done with him? Because that was too nice of an intro for me. Well, it's true. You do mollywop people with your game recommendations. You know what a mollywop is, right? Yes, I do. <laughs> That's like a pretty intensive smack across the face or a punch or something like that. Yes, but given last week's introduction, that's actually really, really nice. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. Other than that, I'm good. I would say I'm doing quite well myself. Great. And how are you enjoying your January? This January. My January has been crazy, as you guys know. If you guys have listened to the last episode of Hardware Addicts, you know that I finally got my new pair of blue light blocking glasses. I talked about them a ton in that episode. And if you follow me on Mastodon, the original massive uglies 70s or 80s vomit that I had on my face to get through when I just got my contacts. And then I also shared a picture of what my new blue light blocking glasses look like. So if you want to check that out or join the conversation about why I love blue light blocking glasses so much, you can either jump on Mastodon or jump on that video of Hardware Addicts and chat with us about it. Other than that, I'm just getting ready for another semester of different co-ops. We start here again really, really soon. Actually, when this episode drops, we will be back in our first week of co-op for the semester. The class that my daughter wanted to do with drawing, we put it on the schedule, but unfortunately it ended up getting dropped. And this has been some of my issue with Thursday co-op is they will have one hour because we've got three different class hours, one hour where it's just so full of awesome stuff that it's hard for kids to choose. And then another hour where there's like almost nothing. So when we were originally looking at the schedule, my daughter came to me and she's like, mom, there isn't anything. And I mean, anything I want to do first hour. And when (laughs) I looked at the list, I'm like, yeah, I don't blame you because if I was you, I wouldn't want to do any of them either. In second hour, there was one or two that eh, they might be okay. And then supposedly she was going to be teaching the art class third hour. So we decided that she had some other schoolwork that she needed to do, especially for Tuesday co-op. So she was just going to shadow me the first two hours and then teach her class third hour. When we got the finalized schedule, yeah, she's not on it at all. But she's like, ah, that's not necessarily a big deal. She would have liked to teach the art class, but we can do that come spring semester next year, right? It's not the end of the world. There'll be another semester coming up sometime. And now she has that whole day. I don't, but she has that whole day to just work on other things that she needs to get done. She won't even have to leave the house and come with us. She can have all of that quiet time to herself. I have a much smaller group this semester for coding class, but it's also along those same lines. It just got put in a position where with the age group that it was meant for, 
There were so many other activities going on. So I only have five kids this coming semester, but that'll be really, really nice. This week, what I'm going to do is go through the laptops. Once again, pick out the ones that have the very best battery of all of the ones that I have and put their names on them. That's something I didn't do last semester and I really, really wish I did, especially where I had 10 kids in there. I'd have to pull up my list, look at the number on the laptop because these laptops do have numbers on them. They already have like a student whatever number. And so I'd have to pull up my list of which kid had which number. And yeah, it was an absolute disaster. So this time I want to somehow put their name directly on the outside of the laptop. And then when they go to log in, they will see their own profile. And if we were still going to be doing the art class, we'd be using the same laptops. And that way, whichever kid was using the laptop of which class could just log into their individual account. Even though we're not doing the two classes, I still want them to be able to see their name and their login and just help make sure that everybody is getting the right computer every time so they can continue working on their project and we're not messing with getting the right person, the right device, and missing class time when we could be doing really fun coding stuff. What an interesting problem. Uh, do you have a network that they're all sitting on to when this happens? I'm just curious. Well, the building that we're using... There is an internet that they can connect to, but otherwise it's just the individual laptops. There is no easy network to share files with. I gotcha. My early days of Unix, I was working in a CAD department and was using these HP Unix machines and you had a home system that you sat at. That's where the files would be stored. But if you went to another Unix machine and you logged into that, it would actually mount your home directory on that Unix machine automatically. It didn't matter where you were. They had some sort of like a yellow pages thing that I don't even know if this is even still used the same system exactly, like the same method. But it's where I was really amazed by Unix systems, Unix Linux systems. And I keep wondering if there would be an, you know a way to do that on my home lab, essentially, you know where I can log in all those same files, just follow me around. I know with like laptops, it's much different because you don't always have the network connectivity. And then if your network goes down, then a lot of crying and gnashing of teeth. And none of this is important or relevant to what you're saying. But it's one of those neat things that I know the Unix or Linux operating systems can do is how they can adjust for varied user problems and whatnot. So I almost kind of wonder, and I don't know how much data each child would necessarily make, but I wonder if there's a way of synchronizing them so that it wouldn't matter what laptop they took. I'm sure that would be a big pain in the butt. I'm sure Bill right now is saying, no way, don't do that. I can't help but wonder if that would be a possibility to somehow be able to have it so all the kids' records or whatever were stored on all the machines. So if any machine were to go down, it really wouldn't matter. Just bring another one up on that cluster of machines. And they would all have the same data. That is a very interesting way to solve that problem. And it's something I might do some looking into. Part of the issue, I think, is because it's not a building that directly belongs to us, we just rent it for that day of the week. I'm kind of limited when it comes to even the internet access that we have there. Yes, they have a quote unquote public Wi-Fi. So it says it's their public one, but you still need to know the password. So if you are a frequent visitor of that building, right, you would have access to that password and be able to get into it. But somebody who doesn't ever enter the building doesn't have any like business physically being in there, if they were just sitting outside in the parking lot, they can't access the Wi-Fi. Part of the downside of that is it's definitely not the fastest. And one of the positives and negatives of these laptops is they have a physical button to toggle on and off Wi-Fi. 
And it is amazing how many times that button gets hit, whether it's the kids flipping the button, whether it's getting flipped as we're loading, unloading the laptops, as I've got them home and I'm trying to get everything charged and repackaged up, you know, all of that fun stuff. But half of the time, more than half of the time, I was always dealing with some sort of, hey, I don't have internet. What's the internet password again? It's not that the password needed to be retyped in. It's that that stupid toggle had gotten flipped, that fantastic toggle. I do really actually like hardware toggles, but it was flipped and now they thought they didn't have internet where if they just flipped the hardware switch, everything would be working fine. And I kind of figure that that would be a detriment to them getting all of those files synced because somebody won't have their toggle flipped and it won't have sunk to the other computer. So it'll just at this point be easier to make sure everybody has the same device each time. I have to admit, I have bumped that uh, Wi-Fi toggle more times than I want to admit to on this podcast and not understood why I had no internet. Well, the first thing that happens when that toggle gets hit is you don't assume that it was a toggle. You assume that your internet went down, that something's wrong. And so you do all of the other mitigations and then you're like, oh, oh yeah, it was the toggle. Right. We're good now. Maybe you'd put a post-it note on each of the machines (laughs) that say, check the Wi-Fi toggle or something like that. Yeah, I think we do need (laughs) to have a countdown list at the beginning of class. And one of those first things needs to be, is the toggle switched to active Wi-Fi? You know, that's not a bad idea. Like in the beginning of class, you may have like a uh, on the board or whatever, some sort of, of material, some sort of content display thing in front of you. Check this, check that. Like a systems check, you know, before you uh, take off in an airplane. Right. And make sure your seat's buckled and your tray is in the upright position. Very good idea. Yes, very good idea. Matt, you've still been working on this macOS challenge. How are things going with macOS and this new iPad that you Well, new to me anyway. (laughs) To continue the argument from last week. (laughs) Yeah, I already solved that argument last week with the flashback from the episode where you said that you weren't going to be buying anything else other do i need to reinsert that again (laughs) so yeah i've been using the ipad now this is a 2017 ipad pro 10.5 apple's naming conventions went from clean to like other odms and oems now nonsensical apps that are specifically built for the ipad are fine however there are certain apps that i do use like i use robin hood i use voyager for my crypto stuff When you hear people complain about Android tablets and how they're just big phone apps and all the other stuff, I'll specifically call out those two apps that I just mentioned. They are literally the phone apps. So like you'll log into Robinhood as an example, and you'll get the small UI of the phone app on a 10 and a half inch screen. It looks like I'm looking at my like iPhone SE on the screen as opposed to utilizing the entire screen. For a company that talks about having great experiences and all the other stuff, I'm just saying, and some of that's on the developers, I'm not saying it's not, but just going to say, that's kind of a not a good experience. Now, I also shared a picture on Twitter that was kind of ironic because Apple is known as a company for detail, right? That's their thing. Mm -hmm. So when I got this, I updated it from, I think it was like on iPad OS like 11 or something. So it, it updated to the current supported version, which cool, great. Why is it when it gives me the remaining time the progress bar and the OS number and all that stuff, that is essentially all jumbled together 
to look like one massive mess of words. Yeah, a lot of pixels out of place on that picture. <laughs> yeah, you think. I'm not a big fan of the guy, but I've heard other people talk about stuff like this, and that's uh, Chris Perillo. I mentioned jank or cleaning up of iPad OS specifically. I can see where he comes from. I'm going to go out on a limb and say the Android tablet experience, for what it is, isn't nearly as bad as iPad. I'm not saying that this is just anecdotal. This is like first impressions. For all of Android's flaws, I would probably recommend Android on a tablet over an iPad if you don't buy into the Apple ecosystem. Like there are certain things that there are just professional apps, quote unquote, that are designed to work on the iPad. Like stuff that's designed to work it on it, great. It's kind of like macOS. Stuff that is designed to work on it works fantastic. But there are some very, very janky things that they need to fix. And that's kind of my overall experience with it. Kind of my been my overall experience on macOS, the iPhone, iPad now. <laughs> I honestly don't know where I end up falling in to viewing this. Wendy, you'll probably know this better than most because most aren't going to understand this reference. I would rather use the default Kindle Fire UI over the iPad UI. Wow. In some ways, I absolutely agree. And in some ways, I don't. The base Kindle Fire one, it's still way too bloated for me. I shared my home screen with you. Like yeah. it is as clean, as clean as you can get. And I even had this argument with Ryan last night as we were talking about different user interfaces and how we like to use them or which one's best. And they both drive me nuts because they're way too cluttered, but there are certain things even on Fire OS, and I guess it would be because it is based on Android, that still makes multitasking between applications easier. And I can't stand the way Apple does it or the lack of being able to easily multitask between applications. At least on this one, this one still has Touch ID because... Um... Yeah, Face ID, not a thing. Not a fan. The multitasking is interesting. I don't know what version you've used recently, but like the multitasking is interesting because it's like a double tap of the home button to bring up the multitasking, whereas like Android feels a little more uh, just hit the capacitive type buttons down at the bottom kind of deal. So the multitasking feels more fluid, I guess. I find this conversation because I don't really use Android much, especially on tablets, or I don't believe I've even touched an iPad in years. But to say the multitasking is better in Android, and I think the Android multitasking is an abysmal failure, that says a lot as to the multitasking capability of an iPad for me. I would still say that an OS from 10 years ago is still better at multitasking than either Android or iOS. I'm going to say BlackBerry Playbook OS and I'm going to say WebOS are still the default standard for how to do multitasking on a mobile OS to this day. And yet WebOS didn't win out. I would say that Windows 95 has better multitasking than Android. <laughs> Take that into consideration on how I feel about Android multitasking. Says the man still using AC64. It actually has pretty decent multitasking if you use the geos operating system thing that's it's not too bad i mean it's a little bit slow you know you're limited to like a 320 by 200 resolution you know so you got me on the retro stuff now and i'm all excited so let's move on while i'm busy complaining about multitasking and ios and whatnot nate you've been working on some videos to actually prove some of your stuff that you've been working yes so a long time ago when i started doing this whole cubiclenate.com thing i'm plugging myself i guess here i did it as a place to put all my personal notes things that i didn't think belonged in like an open wiki or someplace else or like just referring to a forum i wanted to consolidate all my notes 
and have them so they're more easily accessible for me if I don't have my machine in front of me or whatever. So that's why I started doing the whole thing. It was never meant to be more than just a dumping ground. Well, it still is a dumping ground. I've tidied up a few areas. And one of those areas is the multimedia codex installation. So one of the encumberments of OpenSUSE due to legal reasons is they can't incorporate a lot of the codex by default because they don't want to get their pants suit off of them because of the, you know, their size and everything. The codex are in a different repository. And now some people say you shouldn't use the Pac-Man repository, which has all these codex. Use a flat pack method instead, but okay, fine. Do that for you. I did this for me and I had a request from somebody that goes by the name of F. That's it. Just letter F on Telegram and says, hey, I really like this. Do you think you could do like a video on it just to make it easier for people to see how to do it? And I said, sure. And then six months later, I did the video. And so I published it last night. It's not very long. It's real quick. This is the process I go through to install Multimedia Codex and OpenSUSE Tumbleweed. But there are leap instructions there. And I do address that as well. I also address the LibDVD CSS. So if you want to play DVD movies, you know, if you want to go back to 1998 and play some physical media or 2004, whatever, whatever you want to put in, insert previous year, then you know how to do that as well. It's just a quick little simple video. It's really interesting, all the feedback I've already received on it, how other people do it. And I think that's great. I love hearing other people solve problems. This problem solving works the best for me. And so I decided I'd just publish it. Awesome. And I think that is absolutely needed when it comes to using one of these different Linux operating systems that doesn't come with maybe some of these proprietary options that you need to get things to work. And just having them out there and having them updated means that somebody who wants to try OpenSUSE but is still learning the ropes can quickly find that information, get things up and running. I will say I've had confirmation that my step-by-step instructions are good because I notice on the OpenSUSE support matrix room, my page on my site is referenced a lot. You just use this. It's the easiest way to get it done. It's a good confirmation that I have and I'm, I'm glad it's helping other people. So hopefully I can help a few more people like if they're just doing some random searches out there, you know, because you know, anything that's on YouTube, higher rank search results on Google. Not that I use Google, but nonetheless, hopefully that'll help people out. Yeah, definitely. I'm sure it will. The thing I love about that is a contribution that the community can use. This episode of Deal and Extend is brought to you by DigitalOcean. Now's the perfect time to dive into DigitalOcean. Their new app platform service helps you build modern cloud-native apps for way less money. With app platform, you can build, deploy, and scale apps and static websites faster and easier than ever using a simple, intuitive interface. Simply point app platform to your GitHub or GitLab repository and let it do all the heavy lifting. Whether you're using Node.js, Python, Go, PHP, Ruby, static sites, Docker, and containers. By running App Platform on their own infrastructure, DigitalOcean keeps your costs significantly lower than any other products. Plus, it's built on top of DigitalOcean Kubernetes, providing a smoother migration path so you can take more control of your infrastructure setup, too. As a DLN Extend listener and member of the DLN community, you can get started building your world-changing app on their app platform for free, and it gets better. DigitalOcean will give you a $100 credit when you sign up at do.co slash DLN. Again, go to do.co slash DLN to get started with your free $100 credit on DigitalOcean's new app platform. We want to thank DigitalOcean for sponsoring this episode of DLN Extend. My favorite thing about being a Linux user and being part of Linux communities is the ability to contribute back to others. It uh, really gives you a good feeling, at least for me, when I can help somebody else out 
solve a problem or do something new with their computer. I know, Matt, you've been around a long time in the Linux world. I heard that you have been doing some more contributions to the Ubuntu Budgie project in game testing. Is this true or is this just a vicious rumor that someone is trying to spread that you actually do something besides, you know, belittle me? Well, the belittling <laughs> you part is the fun part of the show. And no, in fairness, I don't just belittle you. I belittle OpenSUSE and its installer. Let's be real. Actually, you belittle a lot of people. I just feel like I'm special on your list. <laughs> I have a feeling that Matt doesn't like me because he gives you crap, Nate. He gives crap to Michael and Ryan and Brandon and so many people on the network. But I hardly ever get crap from Matt. So I don't think he likes me. <laughs> it's because of Magneto. I think he's afraid that Magneto will somehow <laughs> remotely crush his brain with a twist of a wrist. Ah, uh, maybe. <laughs> I don't even know how to respond to that. Well, it's that metal plate that you have from the uh, motorcycle accident, right? Yeah, totally. You're welcome. <laughs> totally derailed it. Thank you. <laughs> I love it. It's my skill. It's the only thing I can contribute to this conversation. <laughs> yes, I have been helping test out some features that Ubuntu Budgie wants to add to the Budgie welcome screen, which is specifically related to gaming. It's a gaming subcategory after the installation stuff for when you first log into Ubuntu Budgie. It's a really awesome program that they're looking to do because it simplifies getting up and going for gaming on Ubuntu Budgie specifically. So the cool thing is it's a snap. The nice thing about that is as this program improves, especially on an LTS base, it will be updated to reflect that. Every time there's a new ISO update or a new you know, hardware enablement or you know a point release or any of that kind of stuff, that app has a way to get constantly updated in the background without any of the nonsense that generically comes with like a static release. So snaps in this particular case are a fantastic way of doing that. I'm not going to get into the Flatpak snap app image debate, but in this use case, it works really, really well. There's three categories that I'm helping contribute into, and one of those is like game launchers. I believe they have a label as game clients. Then they have game tools, and then they have game recommendations where there's still some up in the air talk about how they want to really implement that. They're talking about maybe a mix of stuff from the repos and just kind of general commercial game recommendations on its own tab. But stuff like that is what I'm helping work on and test and that kind of stuff. And it's just a nice little project that it's doing what the primary distribution should be doing <laughs> to be real. Right. It shows that Ubuntu Budgie has a better understanding of what a Ubuntu community is looking for. There's also other areas I've helped contribute, you know, stupid things in like Ubuntu Budgie, where it's like at one point, the spacing of the default applets used to look really, really crammed together, like visually. I'm not talking like Rocco, like one pixel off kind of deal, like really grouped together way too closely. So it's like odd spacing. You'd have like, this is getting like minutia kind of deal, but you, it's noticeable stuff. You'd have like eight pixels from the clock and then you would have one pixel between one applet then like four between the net. It, it just looks off. So what they ended up doing is well, last time I talked to Dustin, he added default spacers to fix it. And now when you log in, the default applets are all evenly spaced. Something small, nice. something stupid, but it's something that makes a first impression. It's a whole uh, pixel out of place uh, argument that our good friend Raka would bring up about how he would get upset about this desktop interface. <laughs> yes, you're not wrong. You're not wrong. Again, it's something that makes that first impression. And I think it cleans it up. It helps it a little bit. And, you know, once you start adding like third-party applets and that kind of stuff, that's a different story. But the default experience was the thing that I was more concerned about. And Yeah, the core pieces. 
Yeah. And that ended up getting fixed. And it was really cool to be like, oh, I helped contribute to that. That was just an off the cuff <laughs> recommendation to Dustin. I'm like, this one thing irks me to no end. And it got fixed. That is so funny. Well, as a user, if you're looking at something and you're like, oh my gosh, if you can't get it right on your defaults, what is the rest of it going to look like? So that first impression, just in that instance, really does make a huge difference. And I love seeing this flavor of Ubuntu take on making Linux gaming better. And through the way that they're doing it, it can be shared across pretty much any other distribution you want to use it on. Yeah, it's very much like and we have a bunch of game Ubuntu app that Ubuntu Unity dev is working on. Same idea. Originally, it was a script, then he made a UI. And then I believe as of today, actually, he revamped the entire UI so you can actually single pick what you want installed as opposed to before it used to be click the install button, it, it installs everything. He makes that available as a snap or an app image, which is also really cool. My only recommendation to him was a few different apps. And I made the recommendation of, hey, if you're trying to make this quote unquote Linus proof, then you might want to add a UI as opposed to make it a script. <laughs> Lo and behold, he added a UI. That's beautiful. That's an excellent point, though. It's something that was being learned from the adventures of Linus and his dive into Linux saying, hey, this is actually a problem for some. And it's being blasted across so many people not in our community. We have a chance to fix it. Let's do it and just solve the problem. Yeah, that's the thing that I loved about for all my issues with that particular challenge, I do like the fact that there was at least some good that has been able to direct the community as a whole to improve things like you can't break things like plasma anymore through discover or you know you can't break pop os anymore through even though that was a user error which is my opinion but you know there was actually good that came from that but there are so many other ways and stuff that people can contribute. I know I've done some copyright for eLive a couple of years ago at this point. I haven't checked them out recently, but the site's probably different now. Just to clean up their flow of English, because English isn't their mm. primary language. So it was just kind of less Google Translate, more natural spoken English, at least in the writing. Right. It wasn't like perfect. I'm not saying it was, but it gave a better presentation of the project through clarifying and cleaning up a less machine translated way so that people can at least understand more of what the project was looking for. And that for me was something that I enjoyed doing. A lot of work, not going to lie. People are like, oh, you're just typing. I was like, yeah, it's not that. You're looking at like, how many times have I used this synonym? Uh, you know, what, what's, a, what's a different word for this? But I still mean this. So it's not as easy as some people seem to sometimes think uh, copywriting is. And I don't mean the, oh, I need to go copyright this thing. I'm talking about cleaning up other people's writing, transcribing, transfixing. I, I really don't know what way to word it for people to understand what I mean by copywriting per se. Writing an essay, except specifically for a function, Ubuntu Budgie in this case. And I think that's great. And I want to say I have a lot of respect for anyone who can see the visual things that are not correct. We all have our different skills and talents and abilities and precise UI design is nowhere in my wheelhouse. For me, I'm very utilitarian. I'm okay with pretty much anything, which is probably why nothing in OpenSUSE bothers me. But um, wait, did I say that out loud? You got to keep that one. Oh, I will. I don't see those problems. And I'm glad there are people who have that sort of artistic UX. So it's not just art. I appreciate art very much. But the people who can actually see things like if there's an imbalance or, or whatever, I don't have a very good eye for such things. Now, when it comes to like structural, mechanical, or many other things, clear instructions 
yeah, I'm great at that, but I would never hire myself as a UX designer, ever. It is a completely different skill. So while having an artistic eye is important to the overall finished look and design of your user interface, if you don't have good organization skills and being able to convey them through the coding you're using, it just won't look good, won't function well. And so it's a step up and above just being artistic. Now I can draw a mean cartoon. I'm great at sketching. I doodle all over Stick my kids' papers. or? No, no, no. I actually, I once <laughs> upon a time, this is one of those like things you didn't know about Nate segments. I at one time wanted to be a cartoonist and I drew a lot. Calvin and Hobbes being my inspiration. And so I draw a lot. I still doodle a lot. I like to draw things and, and so forth. So a lot of times like when my kid's boring me with um, his schoolwork, I will doodle across his books because that's just what I do. I like drawing the arts I love, but I just don't have an eye for certain things. Different skills, different skills. And thank you. We've now had our first episode of a little bit more about Nate. I look forward to learning more in the future. Probably nobody does, actually. Yes, they do. New section for the show, Wendy, when we go to LOL. <laughs> yes, absolutely. I would specifically call it Things We Don't Care About Nate. <laughs> <laughs> Random useless fact by Nate. So anyway, we'll try to roll this back to the show. No, I definitely agree. Like that UI element definitely does make that first impression that does matter. So like Wendy said, if you're not going to have an organized way of doing things and it looks kind of janky just to like a normal end user, what does it look like to somebody who has like a visual eye to notice those kind of details? It's going to drive them up a wall. Kind of why OpenSUSE drives me up a wall, mate. You know, kind of like you submitted. I don't know what you're talking about. There's other ways to contribute to projects. I've I have supported Krita, OBS, UbiPorts, ProtonDB. Just there's so many other ways to support and help contribute to projects more than just specifically code or money or, you know, however. Being involved in the community can sometimes lead to that whole contribution that you didn't think was going to matter. Because I know, Wendy, you've had some stuff get thrown into the community stuff that you were just like, oh, I'm interacting with this community. Yeah. And that's mostly come in the formation of wallpapers. I love to take pictures. I've done some playing with different graphic design elements. And some of my probably most notable ones have been images that I've taken just kind of off the hand landscapes and then shared with the community for community use as wallpapers and the like. I really, really enjoy doing that. It's one of those things that I'd like to do more. I'd like to spend more time out taking landscape images. So many of the images that you can find for wallpapers on different Linux distributions are way too bright. They're just way too bright for me. They're blinding. And it was kind of one of those ways that I could take a passion that I love and then add more darker yet natural wallpapers to the community for everybody to just enjoy. I think that's fantastic. A good wallpaper is huge on first impressions as far as I'm concerned. I love what some distributions do and I really dislike what some distributions do, which I will not name. Actually, the OpenSUSE wallpaper is my favorite. So just in case you're going to go there. Shock, surprise, a gecko. Geeko, sorry. It's like got this like architectural or like engineering print look to it. And I really enjoy that. It hits on all the cylinders for me. But anyway, keep going. It's darker in color. Because, you know, all of us around here really love that dark theme. It's absolutely everywhere. 
on all of our systems. Critical. Yeah, totally in that wheelhouse. Just when did you have the blue light blocking glasses? That's how much it bothers you to have those. <laughs> well, I think blue light blocking glasses are a must for anybody. I think who's spending lots and lots of time in front of a computer screen, phone screen, tablet screen, you know, any media device, I think they're extremely important. But during that short time after getting my contacts, of course, it didn't help that I was adjusting. One eye stayed the same as far as prescription and one eye changed just a little bit. Any of you out there who wear glasses contacts knows that there's a little bit of an adjustment period after your prescription changes. And then on top of that, I was also adjusting the contacts. And then we step up another level where I no longer had the blue light blocking. And it was just this light overload. And it didn't even have to be anything specifically bright just because my eyes are so oversensitive to light anyway that I was like, holy crap, I have to go get something different. So that's how I ended up with those really, really ugly blue light blocking glasses. Most of the time, my wallpaper is extremely plain. It really is. I may love photography and pictures and outdoors, but usually my background is incredibly boring. Just a dark gray that matches the rest of the theme of my computer. I don't spend a whole lot of time looking at my desktop, but I know that there's other people that love to have pictures on their desktops. And so why not have not only a beautiful scene, but one that isn't blinding at startup? Absolutely. There are some uh, distros and other places that use those blinding white wallpapers. And man, <laughs> that first impression is like, nope. My retinas are gone. Yeah. Retinas? What retinas? <laughs> you didn't need those, right? No. I definitely understand where that's coming from. That's the thing. Like Contributions can come in so many different ways, shapes, and forms. And that's just one way to contribute back to the community and give something to the community to use and kind of do what they will with. Also to help improve the distributions as a whole. Every little bit actually ends up helping the entire ecosystem, which is really, really cool. And I think that's something that I actually really enjoyed for me anyway. I think that's the biggest thing because I know you've also contributed in other ways. You got involved in making a contribution to Tenacity in a way. Tenacity was just getting started. I mean, they still are just getting started. The project in and of itself really isn't that old. But I was using it, testing it out, playing with some of the features. And one of the things that I have a tendency to do to myself when editing is unlock the different waveforms so that I can move something around. Usually it's one of those cases where we're talking over each other and everything that was said is extremely valuable. So I still want all of those parts of the conversation to be heard, but there needs to be some waveform shuffling, cut, pasting, all of that fun stuff. And if you forget to turn sync lock back on, you'll continue editing. And now one track is way shorter than the other tracks and now conversations aren't lining up and it is this huge massive headache pain in the butt and i'd made a suggestion of making it easier to tell when sync lock is off making that change more dramatic now in audacity things will change if you highlight something with sync lock on across all of the different rows all of the different tracks that you have depending on how many you have you'll get this little lock pattern that's coming across. So you're saying, hey, I'm highlighting this. If you delete that there, it's going to delete everything right here in this section across all of these tracks. 
But as you have used that application again and again, it's still fairly subtle. It blends in particularly well with the background, that kind of same grayish tone. And you can continue working away until you get to a point in a conversation where somebody adds some commentary and you're like, wait a minute, that doesn't belong there. And then you smack your forehead and go, oh yeah, sink walks off. Now I got to figure out where I have to put things back together really adds to editing time. I'd made that suggestion to them and they have actually done some work that's already been through commits to make that a little bit more dramatic, make it easier to see that you have changes going on. The other suggestion that I've made to that project in particular was it would be great to have a favorite. I use Darktable. I absolutely love Darktable. There's a million tools inside that one. And so the favorites have changed over the last couple iterations, but there still is a place where you can have these are the most used toolkits that I need. And you can quickly access them instead of having to dig through all of the different manuals to get what you want. Audacity, Tenacity still have this massive amount of effects that are in them. And you could do crazy things with these programs. And where we are audio only, no music, you know, there's not a lot of the composing or that kind of stuff going on. We just want really clear audio as clear as we can with the mics that we have to share with you guys. And I only have what four or five effects that I use every single week. I want to have all the rest of them turned on because I want to see what's new that's coming in. Hey, maybe I want to play with something else, especially as I continue to learn more about what these programs can do, but having a favorite section to where I can quickly access the ones that I want would be fantastic. And that suggestion was also taken in. It was probably going to be a lot longer before it's fully implemented into the project, but it's just one of those things that I feel we can do as users saying, I love what this project is doing. Here are some things that I think might make it easier to use from my perspective. And then the rest of you who also use that project need to vote it up if it's something you want to or share your suggestions on that thread to help the developers know, yeah, this is worth putting our time and effort into to making a change. Because if it's an esoteric use and only one person needs this whatever option, it may not get integrated unless this esoteric use is from one of the developers. But if it's something that the community as a whole can get on, then you need to share your two cents and say, hey, this would work. This is one of those reasons reading the different GitHub pages is so interesting. And one of the things that I probably need to spend more time doing as a user of different applications because it gives you an opportunity to upvote changes or give your opinion on what's going on directly where those commits are happening. There's so many projects out there. It's hard to stay on top of all of them. And a good place to start, I would say, is something that you're very close to, something you use all the time, like you with Tenacity doing all the editing. When there are issues and there are rough points or areas we could see smoothing out the uh, workflow better, contributing that back up. I know developers have got to love hearing it because it means people are using their software and they're getting that active feedback and so forth. So I totally agree. If there's something that's just not quite right, just uh, you know, let people know, do something about it. And you can do it nicely too. There's no need to be like, oh my gosh, it is horrible to use. No, your application is fun to use or not necessarily fun, but I find lots of value in your application. Here is another value add 
for me and the rest of the community. Right. There's so much more that can be done in contributions. And Nate, you spend a lot of time with documentation, not just on your website, cubiclenate.com, but OpenSUSE has been a big contribution for you in the documentations. What are the some of the things that you've helped out with that? Numerous things, but some of them have been more important to me, obviously. Kind of the origin of this was, if I didn't know how to do something, I didn't like spending all kinds of times searching the web for and piecemealing together different answers to whatever it is I'm trying to do. What I decided to do was take my notes or take what I've learned and either add pages to the OpenSUSE wiki or refine the wiki that's there. In doing so, I've made a great list of resources that I can use, anybody can use really rather, specific to using OpenSUSE. And I test things against the latest version of Leap and Tumbleweed, of course. So some of those things that I've done, and I think last week I talked about the DoD Common Access Card or CAC or Smart Card Reader, that's where I basically started doing this. From there, it went into other things that were important like Java and some other desktop environments. KDE Connect being something that I added some documentation to. And also I translate a lot of that to MX Linux as well, because I do use MX Linux. And I wanted KDE Connect on MX Linux. So I kind of worked through the process to be able to have that. And it works great. I have a rather lengthy list and we don't need to go over all of that. Little things that make my life easier and hopefully other people who are makers that like to make things like the Arduino IDE and the process to how to set that up and so forth. But so those are the things that I've done. I really enjoy documenting things. When I get the solution, just write it down because I don't have the best memory. And so it's a lot easier if I just put all my notes down somewhere publicly so people can use it, help other people problem solve. Because I do contribute quite a bit to the OpenSUSE wiki, I'd like to say it's probably one of the better wikis out there, especially since I try to gear everything that I do to the very basic and easy. A lot of documentation out there makes a lot of assumptions. Just go try and learn Docker, for instance. It's not very intuitive, Docker. And so if you want to get into Docker, start with Docker. It's not easy. Now, although uh, Front Page Linux has a great article by Maru Gaspari, he did a great article on getting started with Docker. Really, there's really not a whole lot of good resources out there. I like to write everything so that I answer all those questions and make a few number of assumptions with my documentation. That's how I primarily contribute. And I do update the documents that I use I try and make sure I get to it at least once a year. Every time there's an update in Leap, OpenSUSE Leap, I try to go through those, make sure that information is still correct and or trim things out. And I try to as well with MX Linux, go through to make sure that stuff is still correct when I, you know, when there are changes and whatnot. And then uh, the other things I do too are like I get emails directly about setting up a common access card. I do email support questions on that. I get a surprising number of those more now than I used to. And I think it's because there's just more Linux users. I'm a little behind on those from time to time, because sometimes you just don't have the time to walk through all that over email. And then, of course, I do financial contributions to various projects, everything from KDE, LibreOffice, or even to some like small one-off projects. When I used to do a lot more with ebook readers, there's a thing called uh, Calibre. It's called Calibre or something like that. So I've contributed to that project as well. And then there's, you know, a home assistant. I really appreciate that project. It's made my life a lot easier. I worked really hard to become lazy around my house. And so home assistant really helps with a lot with that. And also the OBS project as well. I do financially contribute to that because I do use OBS pretty frequently. And I figure since I, mean, I don't make money using it necessarily, I do use it often enough that I feel like I need to contribute to that project. So I have been. And financial contributions can come in so many different ways. And not every single project really has an easy way to contribute. So Darktable doesn't take contributions, monetary contributions pretty much at all. And then GIMP, it's another program that I really like to use. And they have you, one, 
or two of the developers. So you can choose what you, you donate to, or you can donate to both. One developer is specifically for GIMP in general, and the developer that I have chosen to contribute to is actually working on some of the underlying technologies in that aim to get to GIMP 3.0. We've talked about it before in the show, and the main purpose of that next update or the goal when they hit that great big number 3.0 is to have this clean, non-destructive editing workflow. That is part of it that's probably the most important to me. So if you have a limited amount of money, which I've got kids right now that are eating us out of house and home, (laughs) if I've got a few bucks to throw at, it's definitely going to be towards a specific part of the project that I'm looking to see grow, that I'm hoping to be more developed. And so that's one of the places where I have shared monetary support. You know, there's some projects that even don't want monetary support at all. I know like the OpenSUSE project, they are pretty clear and they don't want monetary support. They want you to do things for the project. That's actually why I contribute. I purchased some stuff from their store just because, you know, I want to have some OpenSUSE apparel, but they don't make a whole lot of money off of that. I think that's more for advertising, getting their branding and such out there. I believe I could be wrong. Yeah, there's none of those vendors out there unless you make them in-house. There isn't a vendor out there where the person that you're buying it from, so OpenSUSE, they contract that out to somebody else to make it and they don't get much back from those sales. But there are things like Krita, and I know we've talked about this before, Matt. You can get this open source project on any Linux device. You can get it on Android devices. You can get it on iOS devices. And you can get it from the Windows Store or Steam. Now, if you're getting it from the Windows Store or Steam... They do charge something for that, but all of that is pretty much just a donation to the project and help them grow, right? Yeah. So as an example, the Windows Store version has paid for at least one or two full-time developers for Krita. Wow. That's excellent. Say what you want about the fact that they're, I think it's a $10 charge. And the thing is, it's not like an unreasonable amount of money. The thing with the Steam version is it's $10 as well, and it's usually an auto update. So I use Steam on pretty much every machine anyway. So if it's just going to update my program for me, then why not? (laughs) But the fact that I can also support the project that I use is really awesome. So I have it through Steam personally, but it's definitely worth supporting that project if you actually really believe in the project and believe in the project as a product. And sometimes I think we have to kind of flip the switch a little bit when it comes to, am I going to financially support something? And we have to stop viewing it as a project run by other people. And this is a product that are being put out by people. That's how I view stuff like that. So that's why I've contributed to like OBS and other stuff because I view them as products at this point. They're projects, but my viewpoint on where they at, where I view them like in a professional level is their products. I know my daughter's done some amazing things with Krita. It's a really, really cool program. And it's one that I would love to see keep going if her art class had went forward this semester, then any kid in that class would have been using Krita. This episode of DLN Extend is brought to you by Bitwarden. Bitwarden is the password manager we use and trust. It's the easiest, safest way for individuals, teams, businesses, and organizations to store their passwords and other vital sensitive information. Bitwarden lets you choose the authentication to access your password manager, such as PIN, master password, and adding phrases or fingerprint security. 
all to keep your passwords safe. Go to bitwarden.com slash DLN to get started for free. Bitwarden is a password manager that I use and trust because Bitwarden is 100% open source. It has extensive security audits. It gives you the ability to self-host if you so choose. So go to bitwarden.com slash DLN to get started for free. It's only $10 for a premium account, which gives you one gigabyte of encrypted file storage, two-step login with YubiKey, U2F, Duo, Vault Health Reports, and more. Make the smart move like many from the community have and go to bitwarden.com slash DLN to get started for free. If you're like me, you'll want to show your appreciation by signing up for the premium edition, especially since the premium edition starts at only $10 annually. Bitwarden has saved me from getting into a serious jam numerous times. Now, you wouldn't be able to pry it from my cold, dead device. Thanks to Bitwarden for sponsoring this episode of DLN Extend. Well, Matt, what game recommendation are you going to mollywop the community with today? I'm going to mollywop the community with a dose of nostalgia, especially for someone like you, Nate, because... I'm excited. This would be something up your alley, because the saying goes, the more you know. Yes. There is a thing called Yo Joe in front of it. <laughs> so this is a G.I. Joe Operation Blackout. I'm going to be really upfront about this game. You can play this single player. If you are going to play this for a single player, don't get this game. Short version. This is... So solely structurally built around local co-op and multiplayer is the intent. You have the ability to play it by yourself, but you will get the most enjoyment out of it playing it with somebody else. This is available on Steam, Switch, and I believe PS4 and Xbox. So it's available on pretty much anything at this point. It's a fun third-person shooter with different characters from G.I. Joe that you can play. So you get to select your different characters that you want to play throughout the game. Achieve goals, you know, there's one story mission where you're playing Storm Shadow and you get to fight Duke as an example. Like small little stuff like that for nostalgia nerds like Nate here is just going to be fun because that gives you a reminder of the late 80s, early 90s and the way that they went about comic book kind of way the story is told. Motion comic, I guess, would be the best way to describe it. And there's a cell shaded look to the characters. So it plays into the cartoon kind of nature of the source material, which is really, really cool. You need Proton GE if you want to play the single player for the movies and all that stuff to work, at least according to the last report. I'm playing this personally. I'm playing this on Switch, but I've had some fun with some friends that also own it. It's been a good haha nostalgia kind of time with it. If you're looking for that friend or family kind of game to play, it's rated teen. I wouldn't really rate it that. More like e E10, 10 or over kind of deal because obviously there's violence, but that's about it. Cartoon violence. Yeah, exactly. So for me, it's not that kind of thing. And Nate, I know I threw this one year away when I ended up seeing it. I was like, oh, <laughs> Nate's going to love this one. Well, number one, Snake Eyes is always the coolest as far as I'm concerned. Just don't watch the movie. What's that? Don't watch the what movie? They made a Snake Eyes movie. Did they? I didn't see it. Well, when I was a kid and I played G.I. Joe on the Commodore 64... Snake Eyes is always my favorite, which actually is graphically really pretty top-notch for a Commodore 64. But uh, I do like the art style of this game. Similar to some of your other game recommendations, it doesn't look overly 3D. It looks very cartoony, and the art style is really great. It looks like a really fun game to play. Uh, but you said it's better with co-op style play as opposed to single play. Is it the stories aren't as good? What's the reason? You have a partner with you. I mean, I'm just going to be blunt. The AI is dumb. <laughs> 
Oh, okay. For anybody who wants a more recent example, play a game like Resident Evil 5, where the whole thing is built around having a secondary player or uh, Resident Evil Revelations or any of those kind of games where the whole experience is built around having another physical player playing the other character is why it's not a great single player game. You can do it, just not very well. Yeah, well, I don't really have friends, so this game probably isn't the best for me. No, but it is family friendly enough. I think you can probably enjoy it with the kids. That's why I made that recommendation. Can it play like cross between like the Steam game and Switch? That I'm not 100% sure on because the other person playing with has a Switch. So I cannot verify nor vet that. Can you get a physical copy? Yes, you can get a physical copy on the Switch. And you can get a physical copy on the PS4. For a Switch game, as an example, most Switch games never go to anywhere but either stay flat or go up in price. This one costs eight dollars that's for the physical mind you that's for the physical yeah steam it's 30 bucks yeah now i do notice that it was made this decade so i don't know if i have to wait maybe another eight years or so eight years like (laughs) 80 oh my gosh it was a cartoon that was in the 80s and early 90s i think we can be fine with a game that was made in the last decade because it's based on an older cartoon it's that's true well technically native for going by the last decade the current decade only started two years ago actually 2021 was the start of the new decade technically oh oh don't even you don't start on zero you start on one. Oh, don't even start <laughs> with the zeros not a number stuff tell that to the aztecs <laughs> at the end of the day this is a game you can still play nate okay i mean it looks like i can maybe i love the uh, art style it is just so good on this it's definitely a, a love letter to the gi joe from the 80s they definitely playing to that while i'm busy playing in front of my video game consoles and making game recommendations that Nate will probably go by and never play because, you know, that's what he does. <laughs> Wendy, you're busy over setting up your camera in the corner, apparently. There was some community feedback on Camera Corner from Hardware Addicts, and it was another one of our listeners, BP Cycler, if I'm saying that right. The suggestion that they made was we need to have a separate camera corner. Now, I don't think that they necessarily listen to this show in particular because I have talked about wanting to set up another one, though this is a great reminder that it absolutely needs to get done and saying, you know, once again, just 15 to 20 minutes. His wife has gotten into photography the last couple of years. She's not a big podcast person, but she really is enjoying those little sections on hardware addicts and just expound across some of those things that are going on. Be able to show things that you just can't show on an audio podcast. There was some more chat after that about, you know, so what are kind of some of the things that you're interested in? What do you want to know more about? Editing is definitely a big one. Being able to use Darktable better. What do all of these different modules mean? I know that application is so overwhelming when you first get into it. When I first saw Darktable, I was intimidated, especially if you've come from something like the Adobe realm, there is a lot of things that are named very, very different. Raw therapy, I think, is almost an easier transition just because some of the modules are named the same. Some of the toggles and the like work a little bit more the same. I actually find Darktable to be a more powerful tool but yeah, it's definitely overwhelming. So that is a great suggestion to go over more. And then another one of those suggestions was just photo naming. Now I do have somewhere I can direct everybody now. 
one of the last times I was on Destination Linux, and it was just a recorded piece because I couldn't be there live when they did the show, I actually did a breakdown of Rapid Photo Downloader, some of the function it has, some of the tools that it uses. And so I can direct you there to that spot in that episode of Destination Linux, but it does need a larger overview than that. That'll get anybody started with the program. I love how flexible it is, but we will definitely be needing to do a deep dive on that. And that's probably one of the first things I'd like to do in getting started with Camera Corner, finally getting it up and running, show people all of the awesomeness that is in that application. Thanks for the community feedback. I am so glad that you guys are enjoying Camera Corner on Hardware Addicts, that it is something that you would like to hear more and do more with. I will do my best in getting that out just as soon as possible. Yeah, I think a lot of people are impatiently waiting for this. I mean, you've teased it now for... for, um, Over a year. Over a year, you've been teasing it. At some point in time, appease the masses. Make it happen. Yes, absolutely. When this actually came up, I was standing at the kitchen computer reading it and my husband looked at it. He's like, yeah, see, I've been telling you, you need to get a separate camera corner out. So I will do some work. I need graphics and all of that good stuff for that one too. So I need to spend some time pulling some of that stuff together so that once the show is done, there's some consistency between them and work out with Michael and Ryan where exactly that's going to go. There's a whole bunch of stuff going on in the back around here. I will be doing some chatting, doing some graphics work, and we've got to get this camera corner out. Thank you so much for the feedback. Once again, I'm so glad you guys are enjoying that section. Nate, you are pretty good with all of your old tech, but your newer HP Elite Book seems to be having some issues. How's the fix going? Well, it was kind of a surprise, but all of a sudden I noticed the computer, which they even advertised like the sound on it. So it's supposed to be good. And there's no such thing as good laptop sound, but it wasn't bad. But all of a sudden it started sounding kind of rattly, a strange vibration sounding. I thought maybe it was just me, you know, like I had to change my battery in my bell tone or something. The speaker on the left side has stopped working properly. On the right side is fine, but it's it's annoying to have to plug in an external device just to listen to basic audio without being annoyed. And I'm not an audiophile at all, so things can get pretty bad before I complain. I contacted a customer support this past Monday. They sent out rapidly a box and I got it yesterday. I'm like, wow, I'm amazed. I was expecting like a week or two. I had no expectation of it arriving already. It's not a very big part. I would even just purchase the part outright from someplace else, but I can't find it. And I opened up the box. In that box was 10 new bezels for the screen, a replacement microphone card like that holds a microphone, and a bunch of plastic spacer looking things that I don't really have any idea what they do, uh, but no speaker. So I contacted HP support again today, but apparently they're going to send out another box. So I'm really excited to see. It's kind of like a loot box. I don't know what I'm going to get, uh, but I'm going to get something from HP. Hopefully it'll be the right part. With any luck, you'll have a speaker. <laughs> now, is this one of those laptops where it's going to be a pain to get it all apart and actually get the speaker replaced? Or is it fairly straightforward? I don't think they could have made it any easier. It is so stupid simple 
to replace the speakers. The bottom panel comes off this computer. It has five captive screws, so you don't even lose the screws when you take the panel off. And then the speakers themselves are not held in by any screws. They have like these little spacer things, and it's actually held in together by the back plate. You just unplug a little like Molex connector, a little guy there, remove the old one, put the new one in, and put the cover on. Now, I did check to make sure there was nothing rattling inside the computer, like maybe some dust or some debris somehow magically got inside of it. But indeed not. It's the computer. The speaker is bad. You can listen to it. Yeah, no, it's stupid simple to replace. In fact, it's not a very thick computer at all. Its interior components are incredibly accessible. I am super impressed by the engineering that went into des the design of this. It's like they made it so you could work on it. And in fact, in further digging, HP and their support page breaks in all the parts, the part numbers, everything. And they have videos on YouTube on how to disassemble the entire thing. So it's not just some random YouTuber. It's actually from HP. This is how you replace this. This is how you take this out. It's not very exciting at all. I think that's great because they made it so it wasn't exciting at all. It's just that easy to do. So kudos to HP for the Elite Book, making it that repairable. I think right to repair is something that HP must believe in, at least on the Elite Book's side. I know they have different classes of machine. So it's very impressive to see how easy it is to work on. It's actually easier to work on than a Commodore 64, I would say. That is so cool. I know there are certain laptops that I worked on that you get into it and you're like, oh my gosh, is this a puzzle or what? Because you almost have to completely tear apart the entire laptop to replace something. My sister-in-law's laptop, I needed to replace the hard drive in there because it had spinning rust and the laptop had gotten dropped or something, but the hard drive had gotten damaged. And so I was going to head and replacing it with an SSD and just getting the backplate off of her laptop. I want to say it was an Asus laptop was absolutely one of the most painful experiences of my entire life, especially when it came to the backplate of a laptop. And it was really funky the way it was designed because there was one hidden screw. So there was this almost L-shaped piece of metal that was up underneath something. And so you couldn't see that screw from the backside. It took me forever to get that stupid thing off. And eventually I had to go digging for some tutorials and whatnot to find out why I couldn't get this backplate off because all of the screws were out, at least the ones that I could see. So I'm so glad that they have made that particularly easy. It's probably another reason to buy HP. I have quite enjoyed my HP laser printer. We have the same one. And one of the reasons why I went that route is some of the work that Ryan or DOS Geek has done with supply chains. And they're probably one of the cleanest supply chains out there right now when it comes to tech companies. So not only are they making sure that slave labor and the like isn't involved with the production of their products, sounds like they're trying to make it so us tech enthusiasts who want to work on our own stuff can without having the laptop down for a day just because you have to dismantle the entire thing. Yeah, HP has been incredibly impressive in that regard. I've historically been more of a Dell guy for years because Dell has done a good job. And I still think that is true. I will say that because their supply chain, the cleanliness of their supply chain, and my experience with this Elite Book has really shifted how I look at HP in a huge way to being much more positive. I've had some HPs in the past that I've wanted to, you know, drop kick, but this HP and what they're doing, I think the company's on the right track with things. I hope they continue to be as such. 
and be good, not do evil things. So especially you know, because of Ryan and the work that he did, that's pretty key now when I go to buy something. I'm not going to buy something that has a bad supply chain practice. I don't want to contribute to that. Especially in the age of tech, that seems to be really, really hard to do. It's crazy how dirty and unethical many of the supply chains are for this high-end technology that we're using which then is even more frustrating when you see the price that you're paying for it and you're like, oh my gosh, I now know who you have making this and the conditions that you have it being made in. Technology is nothing. It is meaningless without the people that are behind it. Exactly. Again, which is why I'm a big fan of Linux, because it is the people behind it that makes Linux awesome, not the companies behind it. As you know, DLN Extend is changing its name to Linux Out Loud to better reflect the personality of this show has become. We have a new logo contest. We'd like you to vote so the community has a say on what the future of this show is going to look like. So check that out on the DLN Discourse Forum. We'd like to continue this discussion with you on Telegram, in Discourse, Mumble, or Discord. Visit the DLN website for information on how to connect to the social channels and all of our shows and creators at destinationlinux.network. If you would like to hang out with us on our preferred social media, see the links at the bottom of the show description or drop us a message on the contact form by visiting dlnextend.com contact. Be sure to check out the DLN merch store and grab yourself some awesome DLN Extend swag along with our other shows from across network. As always, we thank you for joining us. We'll be back next week with another awesome episode of DLN Extend. Until then, have a great week, everyone. Core Control is a uh, app that who just got murdered. It wasn't me. Oh, I didn't realize my mic was on. Apparently, my kids are being loud. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it did sound just, like someone got stabbed. I might want to check. <laughs> okay, I wanted to make sure I wasn't the only one that heard it. It's not going to lie, Nate. That sounded like legit murder. <laughs> I was like, uh huh. Somebody playing a horror movie? It was my boys. It was the youngest one who screamed, and they were actually getting along. I have no idea. <laughs> They probably screamed because they were getting along. <laughs> probably. Okay, just wanted to make sure because I was like, uh, ain't, ain't <laughs> anyone around here? <laughs> well, I mean, with my kids, usually it's if it's screaming followed by more screaming, I know somebody's hurt. But it's just one scream. Sometimes it's not too serious. It's usually fine. Right. Well, yeah. And I couldn't tell whether it was a happy scream or a bad scream because I have my headphones on now. And so I knew that there was a scream. But I wasn't too worried about it because I thought I had my mic muted at the desktop level, at the system level, until Matt was like, um, <laughs> what's going on? <laughs> now I got to remember where I was. Uh, politics about snacks. Yeah, I, I don't uh, know. I'm so uh, lost yeah, right now. Like, yeah, something like that. Yeah.